Hello and welcome to Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee, Part 13, with me Eason and me Bex. And today we're going to be giving you our thoughts on what happened last night in Twin Peaks, which was obviously the episode which we now know as the one where Dale Cooper returned, Las Vegas <laughs> stuff was all wrapped up pretty nicely, they found Laura, Bob showed up, all kinds of stuff was going on. Uh, yes, it was uh, It was an interesting episode. Again, kind of similar to part 12, maybe, but perhaps building on that as kind of showing that really weird stuff is about to go down with strong emphasis on the word about to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was another slightly frustrating episode in which a lot of things happened, but things still felt kind of tantalisingly close to some kind of movement. Um, there certainly seemed to be some weird time things going on. Like the events in Twin Peaks actually seemed to step backwards a day yeah. from where we were before, which just when we were thinking, finally we're going to get to Jack Rabbit's palace, we yeah. had to go back in time instead of forwards in time, which was really annoying. And Las Vegas keeps moving forward day after day, and yet... It's very difficult to try and figure out how those days connect with what else is going on because the days in Las Vegas just seem to be running away. Yeah, it sort of seems like all the storylines are catching up with the right point in time. But it almost seems that certain things were getting ahead of themselves, so they've mm. kind of wound themselves back a little bit. But not in any particularly frustrating way. It's more that there is, seems to be some intention to the way that events are being shown to us. So that's always been clear throughout the last 13 hours that things are not being shown linearly. I know there's lots of discussion about whether there are alternate timelines taking place. We're seeing different realities, all this kind of stuff. I'm still of the opinion, I don't know what you think, that we are seeing a cohesive timeline. It's just that all the different plot stands are being shown with slight skips forward and back here and there that mean that they're not all running at the same pace and they're not necessarily all moving forward at the same pace as well. Yeah, I mean, they've they've definitely skipped around before. I think this is all one reality, with the possible exception of whatever's going on with Audrey, which I think might not oh, yeah, be reality. That's true. Yeah. I think everything else is reality. But I know we've jumped around a lot before and events that have happened in the same part have clearly been on different days in different cities. But I'm not sure we've ever actually gone back in time. We've, we've skipped forwards in time for a scene before, mm. but I'm not sure we've ever actually had to step back the way that we seem to have in Twin Peaks this time. Yeah, and I think this is the first episode where, and again, it may just be because we're quite far into the return now that we're starting to make these connections with a little bit more confidence it does seem like um, we're starting to see patterns forming in terms of knowing when an event is being shown out of sequence yeah before this we weren't really 100 percent sure because we had no context for it but now for example i think what happens um, actually in the latter half of this episode really ties in with uh, what we saw, for example, with Deputy Jesse in, uh, was it part 11? Yeah. 
Um, but we'll come to that later. But I think it's just this thing where we, we thought something was happening. It just seemed odd at the time. And now we're seeing events play out that do um, place the events we're seeing in some kind of continuity, although it is still a bit scrambled up. Um, and that could be for stylistic reasons, or it could be because there are strange forces at work um, <laughs> moving things around. Yeah. So I think uh, what we should do is we should crack on, go through what we think is going on, happening, and then throw in a few crazy theories along the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, Let's do that. Yeah. Let's rock. So we're back in Las Vegas. And given that we only saw Dougie Coop getting hit in the face with a baseball last time, which is now clearly out of sequence, because actually what we see is Dougie Coop and the Mitchum brothers and Candy, Mandy and Sandy all rocking up at Lucky Seven the morning after their all-night binge, where they've basically been celebrating. They're doing that thing where you always see the end of a conga. <laughs> a conga but it's always interesting to know. When did it start and where did it start? How yeah. long have they been going? Was it just to go out of the car or has it been from where they were before? <laughs> These are the questions that we face. How long has this conga line been going? So they, they go and see Bushnell and they bring him many gifts, uh, free gifts. He gets, I think they're cigars. I think cigars, yeah. In the first one. Cufflinks. Diamond cufflinks. And a new car, which is a matching uh, BMW convertible to Dougie's car. Yeah, so they've given both Dougie and Bushnell the same car which may come into uh, play later on we think yeah so as well as a bit of a nice product placement yet again <laughs> they, do, they, they do sell some pretty nice cars in the product placement on this but they are playing everyone off against each other that's true which is odd it's not like they're just using one brand all brands <laughs> but also I do worry when people get given identical cars especially when we know that Nefarious forces are after one of the people who has the identical cars yeah. makes me worry about Bushnell and Sinclair is displeased to see the conga lion going through the office <laughs> I think it's fair to say he hides under his desk yeah which in some ways is an understandable reaction seeing a conga lion if you don't particularly want to join it <laughs> yeah maybe that's all it was <laughs> maybe he really hates conga lions <laughs> uh so he calls Mr Todd and basically says yeah I don't know why that elaborate plan of ours to pit our enemies against each other didn't work. It's all gone wrong. You have an enemy in Douglas Jones. <laughs> <laughs> so Todd basically says, right, you've got one day to kill Dougie. Yeah, he doesn't He doesn't tolerate any of this because I think he knows what pressure is coming upon him from Mr. C. Yeah. Uh, so he wants his stuff taken care of. I think clearly he's probably let Sinclair get away with quite a lot of sort of faffing about with this. And now he wants some kind of uh, result. And it's interesting that Sinclair has really turned around from being potentially quite a threatening, manipulative character himself. Mm. You suddenly see him in the context of his interactions with Mr. Todd and you realise he's actually pretty scared. He's a bit out of his depth. It's the same thing I think that I felt when I first saw Richard Horn at the beginning of, or sorry, at the end of part five. Mm. And then you see him in that scene with Red, which kind of subverts it a little bit, where yeah. in the wrong context, certain people just really, when shown against sort of even worse people, it's really 
obvious how the ranking works in these situations. And I love the music in the scene, actually. It's very bizarre. It's like it's it's so atypically Twin Peaks. Um, but it almost sounds like it's out of a video game or something. Yeah, I couldn't tell what it was. I, could, I couldn't figure out. I forgot to look at the credits, to be honest. I think it's just a new Badalamenti composition <laughs> where he was like, yeah, I've done something. You might want to use it. And then they're like, okay, we're going to have to film a conga line now to fit this in. <laughs> and then the same day, a delivery truck arrives outside the Red Door on Lancelot Court and they're bringing Sonny Jim his uh, much longed for jungle gym. Yeah, so it's strange, again, the evolution of what's happened with these characters. Suddenly, Janie is... She's a bit confused at first, but it's strange how happy this makes her Mm. as well. It's almost like, I think, with their marriage seemingly back on track in some way, she does see... um, Douglas is having done something useful for the first time. That, that doesn't be the theme of what's been happening. And it does reflect on what the real Dougie Jones must have been like. Mm. Um, I mean, we've got a hint of it in the, those snippets of things in part three. But, you know, we really have got a sense that their marriage was a flaky one <laughs> at best. <laughs> uh, and it's nice to see the happiness that it's going to bring these people. And I... I Again, I don't want to keep going on about this, but I do wonder how it is going to play out in the end when when and if Dale returns to normal. You know, unless uh, Dougie is remanufactured to come back, you know, it's going to leave a weird hole in that whole storyline. Yeah, because the next scene we get is that evening and you've got Sonny Jim playing on the gym set. And Janie says to Dougie, oh, I worried about you not coming home last night. Which mm. means it must only be one day on from when he went to see the Mitchums and has been yeah. out all night. Which again, like you were saying at the very beginning, it says that the scene where Dougie Coop is playing catch, that must have just been shot at some point, could have been used in any episode. And it's just been put in in part 12 to ensure that probably Karma Cockney can legally be allowed to be listed as starring in that episode <laughs> with with minimal effort at all. Um, I mean, it was a bit odd even in that because when you saw how Cooper was starting to wake up, if that's the word, yeah. um, in his scene with the Mitchums at the restaurant when he's having cherry pie um, with the pink ladies as well, it seemed odd that all of a sudden he went back to the Dougie that was maybe a few steps back. Yeah. And now he's kind of more back to how he was as he seemed at the end of uh, part 11. So it does seem that that was just a random scene that was thrown in. But again, I think that's not a scene where things have been deliberately shown out of order to show some you know, specific aspect of the storyline or what's being portrayed. I think that was just a scene that they threw in. I don't think it has any particular meaning um, in the evolution of the story with, uh, with Dougie and Dale. No, but what I do find odd is this day where they rock up at Lucky Seven, having partied all night. I think this is a Saturday, and I don't understand what everyone's doing at work. Be- because, I mean, I know you know some people might be there on the weekend, but you wouldn't expect an entire office full of people to be there on yeah. the weekend. Because the Mitchum brothers, when they saw Ike the Spike get arrested, and Douglas the Cobra Jones being talked about on TV, it was a Wednesday night... Uh, Candy hadn't hit Bond in the face with a remote control yet. 
and they will see the news report and the weather says tomorrow, Thursday, is going to be sunny. And then the next day, Candy hits him in the face with a remote control. Yep. And then that night at the casino, they get visited by Sinclair saying, Dr. Jones is your enemy. And they're like, right, we're going to get him. And then on the Friday, they plan to kill him. So yep. it must be the Friday they plan to kill him, which means Friday night has been out tonight. So yep. it's now Saturday. I, I completely agree. And I have no explanation of what's going on. <laughs> so I suppose we should back up a little bit. So what you've been doing, actually, in the last day or so, is trying to put together an actual timeline of the storylines involving the characters in Twin Peaks, Buckhorn, Las Vegas, the exploits of Mr. C. Trying to see how, day by day, you can work these things out using any known clues to either what day of the week it might be or a specific date again assuming that this is happening in 2016 yeah and there are certain things that we know for sure for example we know that bill hastings gets arrested on a saturday um that's certain we know that mr c must go to jail after that because he kills phyllis and if we assume that Mr. C crashes his car and vomits up the Garmin Bosia at the same time that Coop comes out into Las Vegas and takes over Dougie's life. So back in part three. Yeah. yeah. If that is actually happening at the same time on the same day, then it causes this really weird knock-on effect that there have been so many days in Las Vegas now that it, Las Vegas is getting into October already, which doesn't make sense. Yeah, so all the other timelines are converging, I think, on having the characters. So Cole and the gang doing their thing, and also the Twin Peaks plot. They're moving towards this trip to Jack Rabbit's Palace, where we think that maybe some of these characters might converge, including Mr. C, even. Yeah. But if you look at the timing of events in the Las Vegas storyline, it starts at a point which is synchronised with other plot lines. Yeah. But it's moving forward one day at a time. And because we know what's happening during the day, during the night, and it does seem to be happening in a linear fashion as it's presented, with the exception of that short scene where mm. he's playing catch, we now have moved beyond October the 2nd. Or up to October the 2nd already. Yeah, and where's the weekend gone? Yeah. Because he now appears to have been in work for seven straight days. And no matter where you try and fit the weekend in around yeah. it, it doesn't make sense. So I think it's, you know, I think we're going to touch upon this over the next few weeks, actually, as well. But there is this situation arising where it's going to be hard to tease apart what is intentional, what is continuity error, potentially what's in the original script and i remember when we were recording listening post alpha with bickering peaks we were all discussing the fact it'd be really cool to see what the script for the return actually looked like yeah um just to see whether these things are actually in the script or if this is something which is being played around as the storyline is being put together i mean so maybe he just decided well, it was known that he just shot everything and then he would edit it together, but maybe he also decided just to put things all over the place. Either in a scattershot fashion to make 
each hour of the return seem more even or have certain things happening and to pace bits of the storyline throughout it. Or he's done it, you know, to actually provide some meaning behind it. And I do wonder, actually, especially as we're seeing some of the things in Twin Peaks take place, whether he's intentionally doing it with certain plot lines and he feels compelled to do it with other ones just to create that same sense of confusion. But then other storylines, like the Las Vegas one, wouldn't make any sense if you showed them too out of order. So he's left those ones running linearly. Yeah, and just as we had only that tiny bit of Las Vegas last week, this week there's no uh, coal in the gang yeah. at all. And I'm, I'm not even going to get started at this point on Dan's changes of clothing. We'll, we'll do that at the end, yeah. because that's confusing the heck out of me. We'll do it at the end of time. <laughs> but going back to the night when Sonny Jim is playing on the gym set, yeah. it's the weirdest gym set I've ever seen. First of all, who has a gym set with funny light-up things all over it I've never seen that before in my life I mean I know it's Vegas but do they have like special blingy Vegas gym I think uh, yeah I don't know I mean I, I saw that I thought that's really weird it looked really cool to watch it but then it's one of those things that doesn't seem real at all yeah. but it is perhaps the kind of thing you get in Las Vegas I don't know but there was that bizarre arch that was lit up yeah that almost created like the the kind of image of almost a, a theatre and you had that spotlight swinging around. And, I mean, David Lynch never accidentally uses a spotlight. There's got to be a reason why there was a spotlight swinging its way around all over the place. Yeah, it's been shown, well, when the giant's on stage at the Roadhouse. It's shown on the Roadhouse anyway, but um, it's shown in the Red Room a lot. So when you first see little Jimmy Scott, you see uh, the spotlight in part eight when it's tracking... Uh, Senorita Dido. Yeah, it's been used for all these extra-dimensional uh, events. Yeah, um, and I think what's interesting is I think we mentioned it in our episode on part twelve, but there was that scene where you see the rooftops where you see the reflection of the bird go past, which is very yeah. similar to what you see in the red room. Yeah, in one scene, this is a similar kind of thing where we're seeing again some of these loggy style effects appearing in Dougie's world although I don't think this world is fake I think it's just that there are things which are you know I think as we've always said protecting him guiding him looking over the whole situation yeah but it, it does give it the weird effect of almost appearing like a performance yeah and then you add to this the fact that the music that's playing is this bizarre kind of twinkly music box version of the famous main theme from Swan Lake. And I'm going to go for one of my little Bex tangents now. I think it's going to be the, the first of two today. You can afford another one. Remind me, what we should do is we should have a theme tune for that. <laughs> Something for me to work on. I think it's just uh, people letting out an audible sigh, isn't it, <laughs> at this point? Not again. So there are quite a few different versions of, of Swan Lake. And the famous one that is put on mostly, certainly in the West, in Western Europe, in the Americas and so on, isn't the original, original story that was danced, but was a version of it that was done about 20 years after the original um, ballet was composed by Tchaikovsky. And depending on where you are in the world, there are some countries that traditionally 
for a long time they've liked to do a different version, particularly that has a different ending. Um, basically, what I'm trying to say is that there's there's no canonical version of Swan Lake, which which you are going to see every time you go and see it. Certainly, a lot of modern versions they play with it completely and do something very new with it. Um, and there are some fantastic versions out there. But if you wanted to sort of pick the most traditional, most famous version of the story that starts in the ballet, basically what happens is at the beginning, uh, Prince starts partying with his friends, celebrating his birthday. They see a flock of swans flying overhead. They decide to go hunting. So they get their weapons and they go off looking for the swans. He gets separated from his mates. And he finds the swans down by this kind of mysterious enchanted lake. And he's just about to kill one of them when they start turning into human beings. And it turns out that this um, kind of great white swan queen that, that he had been following is actually a princess called Odette, who has been placed under a curse by an evil sorcerer called Von Rothbart. And uh, the reasons why he's cursed her kind of vary from version to version. But essentially, she's cursed to be a swan. She can only become human during the night by this lake. And all the other swans who are there with her are the same. And the curse can only be broken if somebody falls in love with her and loves her eternally and unconditionally. And the prince falls in love with her and kind of swears that he will be faithful and all this stuff. Von Rothbart turns up and what's interesting is that Von Rothbart uh, his costume normally makes him look a bit like an owl in in the ballet Um, he turns up and the prince says that he wants to kill him but Odette says you can't kill him because if you kill him before the spell is broken the spell can never be broken and I'll be a swan forever so instead uh, the prince agrees to go So the next day, the Queen wants the Prince to hurry up and get married and choose someone to marry. So she holds this great costume ball where all the noble women and princesses and everyone can turn up and he's supposed to choose somebody at the ball to marry. And Von Rothbart turns up in costume with his daughter, Odile, who is the black swan, but who resembles... Odette in in every other way they look exactly the same and in most productions they're danced by the same dancer which immediately gives it an interesting duality when you're comparing it to something like Twin Peaks where you've got Cooper and Mr C uh, effectively the you know the pure honest good version of somebody and the dark corrupted doppelganger version of somebody played by the same actor within within series and uh, the prince mistakes her for Odette because they look the same. He dances with her at the ball and then declares in front of everyone that she's the one that he wants to marry. And at that point, Von Rothbart de- says, Ha ha, I tricked you, you've declared your love for the wrong person. This effectively voids the love that you declared for Odette. Um, so the curse cannot be broken because you, you, you didn't love her forever. And uh, the prince rushes off to the lake to go and find Odette and Odette has seen everything that happened and has basically kind of resigned herself to die and the the endings vary greatly depending on the version that you see but the sort of the most classic version of it is that um the prince throws himself into the lake to drown to be with her and in doing so it kind of seals the act of unending love and breaks the spell um in his kind of dying moments 
And in breaking the spell, Von Rothbart is weakened and dies. And all of the other swans have their curses over them broken and become human again. And they watch as the souls of Odette and the prince ascend up into the heavens. Yeah, so that that's there are versions that have a happy ending, but most of them have... It's not really a happy ending, but at least they kind of uh, managed to kill Von Rothbart. There are versions where Von Rothbart wins, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, not a good one. So what I find interesting about this is not only have they used this music very specifically in this weird scene where Sonny Jim looks like he's almost in a performance on the Jungle Gym, like a performance of a happy family, where you've got the spotlight and the lights and the arch and everything like that. But also the fact that they've used a kind of music box version of the music, because if you think of the context of a music box, the dancer in a music box can only turn round and round and round. They have no free will. They have no mm. existence beyond being in the music box. And they perform when you open the lid up and they stop performing when you close the lid again. And I was thinking about it in terms of Cooper being the white swan, the Odette figure, the good half of the, the dual characters who are in the show, is he kind of under a form of... I mean, it's a bit like a curse. He isn't himself. He can't be Cooper. Mm. He's trapped in another form at the moment where he's living this bizarre kind of doggy life that's not him. We don't really know what it is. We keep wondering what's going to break the spell. Is it mm. going to be coffee cherry pie is it going to be donuts what's it going to be a combination of them yeah yeah but nothing has quite broken the spell yet and i started thinking about him in terms of being this kind of cursed white swan figure as well but also what does that mean for the people around him are they also swans in that context Mm. are they also people who are not able to live a full life um, if you think of why he cried when he looked at Sonny Jim in the car that time, mm. or the weird way that, that Candy, Mandy and Sandy mm. behave. Are there people there who are like the swans who accompanied the swan queen around, that they also all used to be human, mm. and they're all also under the same curse, yeah. that something has to break? Yeah. That, that's, re- that's a really interesting idea. I think it's it's especially interesting because... I watch it from the perspective of seeing uh, Dougie Cooper's like the odd one out in all of this. But that does go a long way to explaining how the other characters appear unnatural. But they do seem like they are somehow sometimes performing a role. How sometimes they appear to be under the influence of some other direction almost um but maybe it's just that dougie seems the most uh, recessive as a character mm-hmm. that you that he stands out the most but it does explain a little bit why candy seems to be something more than she is presented as but it's un it's hard to put your finger on it no it's a really it's a really nice idea yeah, so that that's part one of my my tangent. Part two will come later. <laughs> it, it is related. <laughs> uh, right. So, uh, what happens next? <laughs> Mr. T turns up at the farm. Assuming oh yeah. Assuming the place is the farm. It is the farm. Yeah. It has to be the farm. Yeah. Like, yeah so uh, because Ray, when he was getting away at the end of, well, it's been ages, hasn't it? It was part eight. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, when Ray was driving away and he was on the phone to the person who he thought may be Philip Jeffries or knows as Philip Jeffries, yeah. he was saying, you know, Coop knows where he's going. Mr. C knows where he's going. And he'd already hinted that he was going to the farm, so I think this is it. There was some discussion whether the place where Hutch and Chantel was, was the farm. I think that was a farm, <laughs> but this is actually the farm. Yeah. Um, and it's clearly somewhere where Ray is at home in some capacity. So Ray has been a really interesting character in The Return. Um, and his arc does seem to reach its climax here. But it's it's hard to know where he came from. And like from the context of being amongst the people at the farm, yeah. it's unclear how he ended up in the back of that house with Daria, which was fronted by Otis and Bueller right at the beginning of part one. Yeah. It's one of those things where the the storyline over thirteen hours we've seen him go along this journey and it's it's striking how it's taken a character like that and taken him on this journey in thirteen hours. I mean, for all these feelings sometimes that the show is moving slowly at times, there's not much happening. So much is happening to all the characters. They are going on immense arcs, but I think the fact that we haven't seen Cooper is the thing that means that there's an easy complaint that, oh, wow, the show isn't moving forward. But actually it is. It's moving forward, and I think it is going to happen soon. But seeing these other characters move around, it's almost like they've decided to make sure that it's not just the Dale Cooper show. Mm. You know, it's about all the... All the uh, events which are going to place you know him in the right place at the right time which may be very very late in the return yeah it 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 might be very late i mean swan queen only became human again right at the very end uh-huh. and then she died in most of them so what does that mean <laughs> <laughs> right so mr C arrives at the farm which is in montana presumably uh, not near missoula yeah, yeah, a little reference there, but it's odd. So, so this is the so we last saw him in South Dakota. Yeah. So if he's, yeah, well, well, my geography is bad anyway, but my knowledge of U.S. geography is terrible. But if he's in South Dakota, yeah, and he's crossing through Montana, yeah. So obviously he's there to find Ray to get the coordinates. Yeah. But that is in the direction of. Washington, isn't it? Yeah, that's heading okay. west yeah. towards Washington. Yeah. So we are seeing probably him going to the right place, which means that he must know where he's... or Well, unless he's going to Montana, and it just happens to be along the way, because he doesn't have the coordinates to know where he's supposed to go, maybe. Unless maybe he knows partially that it's meant to be yeah, back maybe into he, the pig. Maybe he knows vaguely. Yeah, he wants be, a specific but... location. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and... The way the farm is set up is weird. What's the deal with that massive screen that everyone watches people come in on? Yeah, so he he turns up and it's like a warehouse almost. It actually reminds me a lot of the warehouse where Richard met Red, although that was in Twin Peaks. And you've got a couple of people, huge, like it's it's a mixture of thugs, goons and hoodlums who are hanging out in this weird uh, concrete enclave 
with just a giant screen. And they watch Mr. C arrive, and then Ray says, oh yeah, he'll come into the first door, but he won't come into the second because we haven't given him the code. They're watching him on screen, but they communicate with him. And they say, you know, you can come up when he says, I'm here to see Ray. And they think they're going to, you know, um, I think get one over on uh, Mr. C. Uh, by getting him up and then sort of screwing him over but uh, yeah <laughs> i'm now just imagining some kind of like one of those online personality tests are you a thug a goon or a hoodlum <laughs> <laughs> or all three <laughs> if you've answered mainly c's <laughs> you're a hoodlum <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah it's it's interesting because so, uh, the two main guys are very well known kind of character actors in lots of uh Lots of films portraying <laughs> goons, thugs, and hoodlums. Although most notably, Derek Mears, the bald one. He's the guy yeah. who we know from lots and lots of horror films. Yeah. Um, he's known for being in some of the later Friday the 13th movies. Um, he's known to community fans as the guy who played uh, Kick Puncher, yes. <laughs> which was Arbid and Troy's favourite uh, half-human, half-robot franchise the yeah. things there was kick puncher kick puncher 2 codename punch kicker <laughs> there was kick puncher 3 the final kicker name there was kick puncher detroit yeah it was big everywhere except in detroit <laughs> <laughs> they didn't like it in detroit they didn't like it in detroit um yeah it's like a um so he shows up and he's the head he's a oh, what's his name rinzo yeah he's he's the head by virtue of being very good at arm wrestling yeah <laughs> <laughs> if only the whole world like you know, worked like this oh dear yeah so they they kind of invite him in thinking oh we've got this in the bag guys let's have some fun and then we'll let Ray kill him or whatever although you think that at this point Ray would be a little less cocky having just seen not only Mr C survive getting shot several times but also half a dozen crazy translucent woodsmen run out of the woods, smear blood all over him and extract a demonic spirit from out of his chest. Yeah. But two things about that. We actually now realise that, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure if Bob was extracted or not mm. now. I think something is a bit ambiguous about how that scene now plays, having watched what's happened now. Yeah. Um I don't know how it worked, but it may have been almost that they were healing Bob and then putting him back in again. Because you never see them take Bob away. No. But at the same time, the fact that it then jump cuts in part eight to the bit where Bob, in that same form, is being spewed out of the mother makes you wonder if that's happened there. It's just a bit It's a bit strange. But you're right. Ray must think this guy is protected. Because he, he says on the phone to, to Jeffries, I think he had some help. Yeah. So there's no reason to suspect that wouldn't happen again. Yeah, I, I think he was probably a bit too uh, a bit too sure of his boss's arm wrestling skills <laughs> at that point. Um, so they they give him this weird kind of introduction where they basically say, uh, "You can take on the boss, and if you beat him at arm wrestling, you'll be the new boss. But if you lose, you bet you have to become one of the crew and do whatever he says. And if you don't do what he says, you'll die." And in retrospect, looking at this episode as a whole, this also, to me, played out like some initial stage of a really weird fairy tale, hmm. 
where somebody gets cursed forever to be part of some crew because they lost a, a, mm. an arm wrestling match to to the arm wrestling king or mm. something like that. You, you can see that it only takes a few tweaks to become some kind of piece of folklore. This is how, yeah, and certainly you have all these other characters who all became part of that crew as a consequence of this. Yeah. And that it, it takes one person to defy that whole thing as well. There's that, there's that mythology around it as well that there's the one person who does take up the challenge but actually wins but then he then becomes a leader of that group yeah and they're not normally the most evil person in the the story <laughs> yeah so from a uh, a slightly less intellectual perspective i thought that given there was that music at the beginning that sounded like it's from a video game this was like the end of level boss fight <laughs> <laughs> but it was like you know when you would go to fight a boss fight in yeah. the middle of a game like Streets of Rage 2 or, or, or Double Dragon or something. And you take somebody down and they've always got a big bald head. And then what happens is you defeat them and you think, okay, it's fine. And then you walk through another door and then another guy is sitting there usually in a suit saying, oh, that was that's my henchman. <laughs> it was that kind of thing. But mm. um, yeah, it was just a really weird setup for this. Like in the middle of, I mean, you desperately want to know what's going to happen to Mr. C, how are things going to move forward. And they go, you know what we're going to have? We're going to have a five to ten minute scene involving a group of people watching an arm wrestling match <laughs> but it was very it was very tense but it was a really weird feeling where you feel like you're rooting for someone who is the villain yeah and yet you're rooting for them in that circumstance that they're in to to succeed um you know it's, it's not like watching over the top <laughs> <laughs> which is what it reminded us of immediately yeah it's like oh go on Sloane you can do it <laughs> but it, it I mean, I also thought Carmel Clarkson was so good in this scene yeah just the kind of unwavering sense of n- knowing that he was going to win all along feeling intensely bored by it but also deciding to make a point yeah along the way it was it was a real it was a really scary scene to watch because I think you don't really get a sense of how dangerous Mr. C is sometimes, mainly because he acts through all these other intermediaries. He's meeting out justice through hiring Lorraine to put hitmen on somebody, or he's doing things through Mr. Todd or Hutch and Chantel. It's been a while since we've seen him do anything. Yeah. So it's a bit unnerving, and that's why it almost adds to it because he wasn't in it for the last few episodes. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. Although I think this is still only the next day after he left. Yeah. Hutch and Chantel. Yeah. But yeah, because they're absent. on the road. Yeah. Later on, we see them. Yeah. 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 So he wins his arm wrestling match. Yeah, surrounded by all these people. And then he basically punches the guy's face in. Yeah. It. It's. It's odd. I mean, at first I thought. You know, he just hit him square in the face. But then you look at his head and it does look like it's kind of caved in. So that super strength that he has as well. Again, it makes me wonder if Bob or something is inside him still. Yeah. Um, he's clearly more than just a a human or corporeal kind of um, entity. Yeah. He really has something inside. And uh, yeah, and all the people uh, around the outside staring. I mean, again, all these... Uh, all these goons and uh, thugs and hoodlums and uh, we were watching it and it just reminded us of what Gordon Cole said in which which part which part was that uh, 11 10 uh, part uh, 12 11, 11 10 4 1 11. 6 5 
Yeah, because it was just uh, it was a group of dirty bearded men in a room. <laughs> it really was. It really was. Dirty bearded men in a room. <laughs> but I don't think that's what Cole was thinking about when he was saying that. But it did make us feel like Gordon was in the episode. Yeah. By seeing that happen. <laughs> it was either that or all those characters initially thought maybe all these people are going to turn out to be, uh, you know, Chuck and Mary. <laughs> <laughs> and Tina and Bob and all these other people. I was like, maybe maybe that's all their names and that's who they're talking about. That'd make it a lot easier. Because <laughs> now they've got scenes where the previous episode just named lots of characters and this one just shows lots of characters. Um, yeah, so they, they immediately are like, okay, he was. Yeah. That's fine. And he wants all their mobile phones. Why does, why does he always want so many mobile phones? Is it because he's he's obsessed with the idea that people are tracking him all the time he's a new i think they are tracking him as well yeah yeah. um or maybe he likes to use them as target practice for hutch (laughs) so he just throws them on the floor (laughs) like a mobile phone launcher and he can play pigeon g with them tim ross just flies them out the sky i don't know i don't know why he has all these phones um maybe they'll have a few free minutes on them and he's like you know i like to make a lot of calls yeah i used to pull your credit losers (laughs) (laughs) it's the final bit of part 18 he's so evil he's he's so evil he'll he'll use up your minutes all my data my data it's calling international (laughs) right yes Yes. on with things so then he has his little one-on-one with ray yep um, we shoot him in the legs, stop him trying to run off. And at this point, you, you're kind of thinking, oh, it's kind of sad. This is clearly going to be the end of Ray because mm. no, nobody gets out of a, that kind of confrontation mm. with Mr. C. And we learn a lot from this, actually. He finds out that Ray never met Jeffries, but was taking instructions from Jeffries, or at least somebody who called themselves Jeffries. Ray's got the owl cave ring. Yeah, so that was given to him, he says, by a guard who... Is it the one who let him out? Or he saw as he was leaving his prison cell on the way to meet Mr. C when they both got out of Yankton? Yeah, he said it was just before he was let out. It was given to him, presumably with a gun as well. Yeah, so there's no description or anything, so we don't really know. Um, But again, because we now... Well, so it was kind of obvious in part eight but we know now that jeffries was behind orchestrating that in some way yeah so whoever this jeffries character is um they're clearly linked to mike because mike was the last person who had the ring he was last seen with it when uh at 253 in las vegas when dougie is returned to the red room and then um, he's sitting in a chair, says, this is weird. His hand shrinks and the ring falls off and Mike picks it up and puts it on the table. Um, and we see that scene again uh, in a few moments as well. Yeah, so Mr. C makes Ray put the ring on. Yeah. He says, yeah, uh, what is it? Left hand, left ring finger, where it always yeah. goes. The one that makes it go numb and, you know, it's always a bad sign. It's where everyone seems to have worn it who's ended up in a bad way. Yeah. And meanwhile, all the thugs, goons and hoodlums are watching all this playing out on a giant screen. That's so weird. That's so weird. I mean, I think I don't really understand this thing about how it was being done. Again, going back to what you were saying about Sonny Jim, 
it seems like they're watching something play out as a performance for them and they do just stand around watching it and what it did remind me of a little bit although it's a very tenuous link is the scene where the giant is watching everything on that big screen Mm. when he's in that silencio set in part eight in the black and white world it's that sense that you're observing things it's not that you're watching things you're seeing something play out yeah um it's just very weird and the fact that it's done so that they're watching it from like this high angle but you it's like they're watching uh it's like they're high up looking down on a stage in a theater Mm. and they're watching it you know it it seems like they're in one of the boxes and they're and they're looking down yeah but then mid-interrogation the little accountant dude is suddenly standing at the top of the stairs and uh, stares at mr c for a while and asks me if he wants some money yeah he says no (laughs) but what he does remind me of and this is again this is pretty old is this our biggest tangent so far it might be (laughs) Uh, he reminds me of the dude who showed up in the season four finale of buffy the vampire slayer so it's the one after they've defeated adam and you know they have the episode where they all um, are really knackered after taking down the initiative yeah and they're all i think they put a film on and they go to sleep and they all have dreams and in, and in all of their dreams the one thing that figures in all of them is this strange little man in a suit who looks like him who's always holding uh, a piece of cheese <laughs> i don't know why it reminded me of that but it did it's like oh, slices or offering them slices of cheese yeah. where the cheese gonna go yeah yeah no he does a bit yeah. I think that's absolutely nothing to do with what was intended by that, that guy, but that's what I got from it. He was offering him cheddar. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, so he goes back to talking to Ray, and Ray says, You got something inside that they want. Yeah. Presumably Bob. Yeah. So whoever this is, whoever's behind. The curtain of Jeffries. Yeah. Wants what? to be with Bob again. Yeah. Wants Bob. Which again implies that Bob might still be in there. Yeah. Yeah. Unless it's a trick. Yeah. You know, maybe they think that Bob's inside and he's letting them believe that. But, uh, yeah. He asked if Jeffries ever mentioned Briggs. Ray says no. Um, Ray gives up the coordinates that he got from Betty Hastings' secretary that he's got written down on a piece of paper in his pocket. And, and then he says something really... He says, I know who you are to Mr. C. Does that, does that mean he knows that he is a lodge spirit? That he is something from the lodge? That he is not the real devil? Well, he's not a lodge spirit. He's... He's... He's Dale split into two. Yeah. They're both halves. So they're not really lodge spirits because technically they both are, I suppose. It's... But I think... Maybe that's what makes him unique. It's the fact that he's the dark half of Dale, inhabited by Bob. But I don't know if that me what he meant was, I know who your actual identity is. You know, I know how you're tied to things. And certainly if Cole and the gang have a task force which investigates all these weird things, maybe he's aware of that as well. The fact that he's tied to the opposite uh, side of this battle between you know good and evil so there's another you know maybe he knows that there is another cooper out there Hmm. in the form of uh dougie coop 
Gwendell was returned. The one thing about the Briggs thing is interesting, though. I think that ties back to part two, when Jeffries asks uh, Mr. C, um, are you met with Major Briggs? And then yeah. that kind of shocks uh, it shocks him a little bit, yeah. shocks Mr. C. So I think there's something to do with that. But again, there are things which are which seem very important in the dialogue here, but some of it I just can't quite place. And then Richard Horn turns up and joins the thugs, goons and hoodlums <laughs> watching on the screen. What the heck is he doing there? I don't know. He's not a dirty bearded man. <laughs> how, how is he part of this network? I don't know. I mean, he's... Do you think this is like a criminal gang, which is just one of the many criminal gangs which are linked to Sparkle Distribution or something? It, it could just, be. Mm. It could be. I mean, I don't think it is the same place that he met with Red. Yeah. That big kind of warehouse place. But this must be taking place after Richard has gone on the run from Twin Peaks. Sure. So we now we know he is really far away. Yeah. Um, so he also went to the farm. Yeah. Which is odd. But then he, he stares at the screen. And I, and I know that they've been kind of almost toying with this idea that who is Richard's father. And watching him watch Mr. C on the screen, I don't know if they were deliberately just kind of leaning on it saying... Yeah, maybe, maybe. You want to have a guess? Maybe it is, maybe, maybe. But I still don't know. Yeah, I I mean, it can be interpreted many ways. It may be that he is looking at him going, who is that? Mm. Uh, there could be some sense of familiarity. Maybe he senses that he knows him in some way. Maybe he senses that maybe he is his father. You don't know. Maybe he has seen Mr. C before. And he's like, what's that guy doing here? Um, there are lots of things it could be. And I think it's interesting that they're deliberately not giving away uh, the link that might exist between them, whether it's familial or, you know, through some other association. Mm. And then Mr. C asks where Jeffries is now. And Ray says a place called the Dutchman's, but it's not a real place. And then he shoots him. Yeah. He says, I know what it is. Not I know where it is, but I know what it is. Yeah. Dutchman's, which is kind of odd. And the first thing that happens is the owl cave ring vanishes from his hand and clatters onto the floor of the red room. And Ray is still dead on the floor, but then the dead body of Ray also appears on the floor of the red room. Yeah. And then Mike picks up the owl cave ring and puts it on the table exactly as he did when he got it from the real Dougie Jones. Yeah. So I think this is kind of weird. It's almost like... Mike had a plan, another plan to try and get Cooper back. And this is the message being sent back to him. Almost, you know, I I still think it's to do with the cow jumped over the moon. Mm. So when we heard that, we thought maybe that meant I'm still on the run. You didn't get me. And uh, maybe it's kind of a a joke that Mr. C is playing on Mike by sending uh, Ray back instead. Maybe, you know, maybe, well, I don't really understand what's happening here a little bit because the owl cave ring is one that's been heavily interpreted by many people to mean many, many different things. Mm. But this is the first time we've actually seen it do something, Yeah, I think. So we know that there are consequences of wearing the ring, but we don't really know what they are. We know that various characters have worn it. We don't really know how it's affected them 
in, or like on what time scale. In this case, it appears to be that if you wear the ring and you get killed whilst wearing it, then you get sent to the Red Room. Hmm. Which also means that we really don't know what happened to Chet Desmond, for example, because yes. he wasn't killed whilst wearing it. He put it on. And we know from the secret history, if any of that can fit into this, that many people have worn the Al Cave ring. Although the original warning by the Nez Pierce was not to wear it. Yeah. Several people did, including like Richard Nixon. Um, and they wore it for quite some period of time. And they were often uh, prone to experiencing very strange events and being involved in, in strange things. But they didn't die necessarily. But they may have had visions of strange, extra-dimensional things happening. And that reference to the Dutchman's as not a real place and I know what it is and it being where Philip Jeffries was last seen. Do you think it links to this you're still nowhere thing from part two when Mr C is on the phone to him? Yeah, because that's when he asks him where he is doesn't it? and then Mr C says are you still nowhere yeah. at all? And so I was thinking about what this could be a, a, a place that is not real that is nowhere that's associated with that name. And the only one I could really come up with was the Flying Dutchman, which is the ghost ship, which is unable to... Well, it's cursed, basically. There's a lot of curses coming up in this episode. It's cursed to never be able to actually sail into a port. Um, and therefore, it's it's stuck at sea for all eternity, just sailing because it can never, it can never come into port anywhere. And it made me think of, well, if, if you were... What if you were constantly moving around? Because we've seen Jeffreys jump from one place to another, maybe even from one time to another. If you did that, could you become incorporeal to the extent that you can never manifest again? Mm. You can never be a whole person again in a place. Kind of like the woodsman. Yeah. Mm. So if you were if you were stuck being nowhere, you could you could metaphorically speaking never come into port mm. you would just be you you still exist but you are kind of in a different plane of existence yeah where you're not really interacting with the world although you are in it yeah 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 like like being stuck sailing on the flying dutchman mm. you can never you can never come into port again you realize that next episode he's going to wander into a pub called the dutchman <laughs> 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 and that'll be it but <laughs> Well, see, the other thing that's kind of interesting here, this is part two of my little tangent, is that uh, Wagner did an opera, The Flying Dutchman, and I had no idea that this existed until I started looking up today. So I was looking up about what's the kind of history of the legend of The Flying Dutchman. And this is really spooky. So in the opera, the captain of the ship can come ashore once every seven years, and while he's unsure if he can find a wife who will be true to him, it will break his curse. And he'll be free again. And over the course of the opera, basically to cut a long story short, he falls in love. Um, but she's got some other boyfriend and she gets accused of, of not being true because she said that she loved somebody else, but she didn't. And then in the end, she throws herself into the sea as he's leaving. And that act of eternal love breaks the curse. And they both ascend up into the heavens together when everyone's watching. And what does that remind you of? Oh my goodness. I thought it was a bit spooky. Mm. It's probably got nothing to do with anything. It's probably going to be a field of tulips <laughs> and windmills. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's weird. I think 
<laughs> it's interesting to kind of find these links because actually what the return has done is really picked on aspects of so many different things i think that's really the the mark frost element of tying together lots of different literary strands not necessarily always intentionally but somebody who's clearly very well read um, and well informed has put together some of these links i think so it's hard to know almost how intentional they are and it's hard to know how many we're missing as well mm. um, because it, it does seem almost like a subconscious thing as well. So we never quite see the exact payoff yeah. that a reference might lead to. But it's interesting that they put a certain reference in and that you can kind of track it to a potential event that might happen later on. Yeah, because we had all these Arthurian references very early on. Mm. And we haven't had one for a really long time yeah. now. And we were thinking ages ago, or maybe we haven't had the name Arthur yet. Maybe that's the one that's going to come when he finally returns. Mm. But that was blooming ages ago yeah. now. That was like 10 episodes ago. Yeah. Eight episodes ago. Mm. Yeah, eight eight episodes ago. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's kind of riddled with these references to things that you can you can go off on these wonderful tangents and discover all this stuff and think about it and it doesn't have to actually mean anything uh i just i was just quite um amused by how similar the ending of the opera was to uh the most common ending of swan lake mm. Then we're back in Las Vegas and the Fuscos are directing their mother somewhere. I don't know what's going on, but at least we now know that they're brothers. Yeah. And she wants to come for Sunday lunch. And one of them have got the fingerprints back. They ran on Dougie Jones and they find it hilarious that it's been matched to somebody who escaped from federal prison in South Dakota and is mm. a missing FBI agent. And they're like, ah, what a load of nonsense. Yeah, I, I generally thought that this was going to be the thing that flagged something although i think it still might because just like with briggs's fingerprints they ran them and then it came up as blocked by the military but it mm. did flag with colonel davis yeah and lieutenant knox so they yeah, so maybe the fbi now do know that somebody has run cooper's prints again yeah um but we don't know if that's going to get picked up <laughs> <laughs> there's a really bizarre aside in that scene where Two of the Fuscos are waiting for the other one to come through and you just hear off camera some massive commotion happening mm. behind. It reminds me a lot of that, uh, the recent video from uh, Comic-Con where yeah. Lynch is talking to the camera and then he's talking about all the things that are going on in the background here, a horse and a cat and all this business. Yeah. There's something funny going on there. But, uh... And then Sinclair drops by, he's looking for Detective Clark who's outside and... It's clear that the police are in on this with him, but they really hate him. Yeah. They think he's a bit of a weasel. And he wants some poison so that he can kill Doggy. So they offered to search him for five grand later that night. Mm. And this must put it on the same day that he called Duncan Todd because he gave him one day to do it. Mm. It's nice, actually. The the guy who plays Clark is uh, John Savage. who's you know, he's, he, he's in loads of things, I suppose. He's become kind of a big figure in, in genre tv and films but i suppose he's most famous for things like the deer hunter and um i remember him from an, ep from an episode of the x-files where they're on that 
submarine where the water makes everyone age. It has all the bad aging makeup. And oh, I remember like. that one. But he yeah. appears in loads of things. Um, but I thought it's nice to see. Again, it's another. I, I did wonder how John Savage would fit into Twin Peaks when they announced him in the cast list. And now you realise they have these little cameos for people. Um, just like they had for Richard Chamberlain. Sort of these very established veteran actors and actresses who made these little appearances. And then we cut to Hutch and Chantel who are presumably driving from South Dakota to Nevada because they're going through Utah. Yeah, so they've done Warden Murphy. Yeah. And now they're going to go to Las Vegas and take out, well, presumably Dougie, but maybe also Todd as well. Yeah. And probably stop at every Wendy's on the way. (laughs) And then we dump to the next day in Las Vegas and Janie is dropping Dougie off at work and I swear this has to be Sunday. How is this not... Hmm. There's something weird going on. But again, it's hard to know to what extent this is intentional. They may just want to have him having all of his interactions with his work colleagues and they never really figured into it, you know, the days of the week. Yeah, because if this is now Sunday and Sinclair has to kill him today, why would Sinclair think that he's going to be in the office on Sunday and be waiting to offer him a coffee? He's doing it like it's a normal weekday Unless morning. they just assume that it's work day after work day after work day <laughs> and they haven't really thought about the actual days. Yeah. I, but I think they have thought about the days in other plots rounds. Yeah. So Janie drops him off in the new car... Um, Sinclair is waiting to offer him a coffee uh, and he gets distracted by the cherry pie in the coffee shop which gives Sinclair an opportunity to slip the poison into his coffee but then when he comes back he gets distracted again by the dandruff on Sinclair's back which is pretty nasty actually (laughs) it was like an excessive amount of dandruff (laughs) Um, I did like the fact that in that scene you know when Dougie gets up he's sitting in a red chair Mm. which reminds me a lot of the chair where he which turned into that vision of Mike that he had when he was Dougie in an earlier episode yeah yeah that's true you also get the the comic relief of him constantly walking into the C3 doors and going into the building as well (laughs) it's quite nice yeah he's just completely being lured around by coffee and pie at this Mm. point He's having coffee and pie together, and you think, maybe this mm, time they're going to nah, do it. No, not going to happen. But, but Sinclair has a total change of heart, and, and can't poison him, and he throws the coffee away, and he confesses everything. It's interesting that it plays against... I think so many things in this episode, in terms of characters and plot, subvert what you think is going to happen. And I think in this case, it's... they've ma- Well, they've managed to subvert the Tom Sizemore character. Mm. You know, he's not playing Tom Sizemore. And the fact that he's potentially on a mini redemptive arc is uh, is very interesting here, actually, because it might end up uh, going against what we predicted. It might actually end up saving him, but at the ex- but maybe Duncan Todd is going to be the one who gets taken out. I think Sinclair could you know he could just end up with the fist of uh, babbling bud, <laughs> and that could be the extent of the damage he has. Mm. And then we jump to the double R. And Becky's calling Shelley, and this is where there must be a step back in time in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Because this seems like it's before Becky's gone on the rampage. Yeah, so Becky is at home in her trailer, and she says that Stephen hasn't come home for the second night in a row. Is yeah. That correct? Yeah. 
So she's calling Shelley, her mum, and it's clear that Shelley is not perturbed at this point. So in, so it's happened before, and clearly when we in the in like two parts ago, it was clear that Shelley was aware of the things that were going on in their relationship. Certainly, the comments that Carl makes about you know, but we've all heard what goes on in that trailer, etc. Yeah, they know they have an unhappy relationship, an unstable one, and they know that. I think everybody knows they're on drugs as well. This does place the um, event, I think, here before the scene where Becky's going to go on the rampage. I think this is the day before, yeah. isn't it? So we've we've already seen Becky get a call from an unnamed character telling her where Stephen is, and it does appear that he's with Gersten Hayward. We've seen her call Shelley, get get her to come over, steal her car, shoots up the place or the apartment where Gersten is, etc. in in an attempt to find her. But here, this is before that, I Mm. think. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's something going on here, which is... Well, I suppose maybe we'll come back to it at the end because it also fits with what the timeline is, maybe with Bobby as well. So then, jump back to Las Vegas. Sinclair is confessing everything to Bushnell. And... Bushnell says, will you agree to testify against Duncan, Todd and the cops? And uh, Sinclair kind of reluctantly agrees to do so. And did you feel that, that Dougie Coop was a bit more coopery in this scene, post-Cherry Pie and Coffee? How do you mean? I, do, I mean, he seemed... He, he, wasn't, he wasn't just... He was repeating words, but he wasn't just repeating them mindlessly. He was standing a bit straighter. He was paying a bit mm. more attention. He wasn't like dawdling around in the background, getting distracted by things. He was yeah. listening. He, he did, yeah. He did seem like he was. It felt like there things, was. Yeah. It felt there was a purpose behind the repetitions rather than literally just saying the last thing that somebody said. Mm. There was direction to it. I mean, that could just be building on, like you said, what was happening in that scene with uh, the Mitchum brothers. Mm. And then we're back in the double R. And this must be the 29th of September because Bobby is there and he says to Big Ed, Big Ed, um, Big Ed Norman, that they found some stuff of his father's that day. Yeah. Which makes it the 29th of September. Yeah. Which also makes it the day before Puke Zombie Girl. Which also makes it the day before Becky goes on the rampage because that's the day when she then meets her mother and father at the double R and that's when the shots are fired and Bobby has to leave to take care of that and then finds a puke zombie girl yeah so yeah so what we're seeing in Twin Peaks is the day before which makes us kind of scratch our heads a little bit this is the same night that Hawk and Frank looked at the map Yes, which is why they're probably looking at it alone. Yeah. Because Bobby's here. Yeah. So this is also the time when um, the log lady calls them, isn't it? And things like that. And it's also the day when, whilst they're looking at the map, Deputy Jesse interrupts them near the end of them looking at things and asks if Frank Truman wants to see his new car. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
so Bobby's gone to the double R. He's kind of hoping he's going to bump into Shelley, but she's already left. Yeah. This is actually really kind of a sad scene in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because on the one hand, you've got you've got Big Ed who's sitting there with Norma, and it says to Bobby that nothing's going on, and yet even when they sit at a different table, he's still looking at Norma. He still clearly isn't over it. Yeah. He wasn't over it twenty five years ago. He wasn't over it even in the decades before that. Yeah. And he's still going to the double R to see Norma, and now you've got Bobby going to the double R to see his ex separated, divorce, whatever they yeah. are. Shelley still hanging on to this. Yeah. Uh, to a former relationship that, it, well, in Bobby's case, didn't work out. And in Ed's case, just was never allowed to happen, it seems. It's just sad that after all this weight of wanting to see Big Ed, you know, I suppose it would have been too much to ask for him to be with Norma. I think, you know, in this in this iteration of The Return, that would have been asking too much. And it's very sad when he's talking to Bobby and he, he says something like, you know, you shouldn't eat alone and things like that. But that's clearly what mm. he does. Yeah, yeah. Um, and does do later. And does do later, yeah. Yeah. We don't really know what's going on with him and Nadine, if they're separated altogether or what. Yeah, so we speculated on this before when we first saw the in-depth scenes of Nadine running her Run Silent, Run Drape store. But it did seem that she was doing that. And we kind of thought, well, maybe he's just doing his own thing. He doesn't want anything to do with this, mainly because he knew that maybe he was being sucked in by the Dr. Amp broadcast maybe he thought that was just absolute gibberish he just didn't want anything to do with it and just let Nadine get on with her stuff and it's easier that way yeah so then Norma is having a meeting with this slightly sleazy businessman and you find out that she's franchised out the concept of Norma's double R diner and there are four other double R diners around and this guy that there's an implication that they might be ha- also having the beginnings of a relationship because he's like, oh, are you still on for dinner later? Yeah. And you just think, no, Norma, not again. Yeah, not again. that whole scene is, is very tough to watch just because you, you realise that something has kept Big Ed and Norma apart. Mm. Maybe they did try and get together and then they couldn't. Maybe, maybe he felt uh, duty-bound to stay with Nadine and you know it's hard to know what happened but there's that scene when it's kind of from over the shoulder of Norma looking at the guy Walter you know he seems I mean he's he seems fine but he's not big ed yeah he's not the person you want to see with Norma and you see them behind like like two booths back you see um big ed just like staring back and mm. it's very sad just to see him watching and then even when it goes from a shot that's over the shoulder of this guy Walter. You see Norma listening to him, and then at one point her eyes kind of dart up, and she sees Ed watching mm. her. And you realise that she knows, and he and Big Ed knows, but they still seem unable to ever be happy in yeah. some way. Yeah, but he is. I mean, he's not as bad as Hank. No. Um, but I do think it's funny that this guy is called Walter, because I think there was there was some interview at some point where somebody asked David Lynch. What shows do you watch? Is there anything you watch? You know, or do you just make quinoa and things like that? <laughs> and he was like, he likes Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Mm. And uh, I think it's interesting that Norma was with Hank, and now mm. she's with a Walter. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, and I was yeah. like, yeah, 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 I can do tangents too. <laughs> <laughs> and this Walter dude, 
is basically trying to put a bit of corporate pressure on her to change the recipes of her famous pies to make them more profitable. Yeah. Change the name of the diner to make it fit in with the rest of the franchise. All, all these little subtle things that she's clearly not that happy with doing. Is this Mark Frost? I think it is. Doing one of his um, little digressions where he gets to talk about the what the influence of corporate America on small town life and yeah. how it impinges upon all kind of like uh, blunders into you know regular lives and tries to take control and everything is about making money and at the expense of quality and uh, honesty and integrity and there's something going on here it's very much like the 99% speech it's actually quite it does ring it's interesting that they show this and then later on we see Dr. Amp who's been rallying against hmm corporate ideology um in in a couple of his previous rants so there's something about how they're doing that which again seems very frosty but uh it's hard to put your finger on it but you realize that you know norma really wants to keep the double r as it is and it's interesting how that'll play out but it's a weird plot point to bring up now yeah i thought i i i can't see it going anywhere i can't see a storyline having much relevance in the next, well, the final five hours to do with franchises of the Double R Diner. I mean, certainly it was interesting when early on we could see Double R to go paper cups yeah. in the sheriff's office. So we knew that that was still going on. Mm. We knew the Double R still, you know, still functioned. But I don't know where this desire to bring this plot in actually is i've been thinking about it a lot in the last few weeks it it really happened when i think i saw audrey uh last week that's when it really crystallized but i realized how subversive those entertainment weekly covers were <laughs> because watching the return you now realize that that was it was just a photo shoot but one which really lulled you into a sense of thinking this is the original Twin Peaks crew but 25 years later and potentially some of the same relationships still existed and it seemed very similar I mean there was I think you saw Big Ed with Nadine and Norma you felt that that, that love triangle may still be going on I think to be honest I'm glad that uh, things have gone the way they have in their return but it's interesting that you know looking back at the marketing materials like that everything they were putting out in a sense, was designed to misdirect from what was actually going to take place. Yeah, it was an exercise in nostalgia. Yeah. So here are the characters that you remember, that you love. Yeah. How much do you reckon you're going to see of any of them? Yeah. And maybe that's what people have reacted to in different ways. It's maybe quite difficult to have been told things are going to work a certain way and then not have it presented like that. But actually, the return has... It's done something unique. It hasn't just stuck to the formula that it could have done. I think they could have done 18 hours of hanging out at the sheriff's station and they've chosen not to because they want to tell a story that has relevance to the Twin Peaks mythology 25 years later. And actually, is there anything weird about what's going on with these characters? 25 years have passed. It's meant that late teens are now in their, what, their 40s and 
you've got people who are in their 30s and 40s who are now in their sort of 60s and 70s. I mean, people are growing up here. And I think a lot can happen in 25 years. And I like the sense that actually they haven't moved on and gotten 25 years older, but their characters are only five years older. <laughs> I think something has happened. I think, I think that's why when we finally get the final dossier, it'd be kind of interesting. Because that was the original... Well, again, that's even part of this whole misdirection which has taken place. When they first announced the secret history of Twin Peaks, I'm sure it was originally going to be the secret lives of Twin Peaks or something. And it was mm -hmm. about to talk about what had happened to the residents in the last 25 years. And I do wonder if that's going to be important for the final dossier, but they didn't want to release it because it would have actually undermined what we saw in the return. Maybe it explains why the characters have gone on the trajectories they have. Mm. And then we see uh, Dr. Amp dropping by on Nadine. I think it's because he sees the gold shovel in the window and stops. Yeah, so he kind of, I think you see his truck go past, but then it breaks and it reverses back. So I was so at first I thought he was going there intentionally, but yeah, he, he notices the shovel and he's like, oh look, there's a fan. Hmm. So, and he's not expecting it to be Nadine until she opens hmm. the door. And you find out they haven't seen each other in seven years. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I think we're so used to having... I think Twin Peaks always felt like a small town. Mm. And we've seen with The Return that the geography of the story is huge. I think it's going to get even bigger, potentially. Um, but even in the town of Twin Peaks, people's lives have grown apart. Although there is a hint in The Secret History that Jacoby moved away. So maybe there's a reason why he moved away and then came back. And you know, But everyone's lives are different now. And I think it's interesting that she refers to him as Dr. Jacoby. Yeah. And he seems, I think he finds it a little bit jarring because he's clearly got this persona as, you know, this uh, Dr. Amp character who has his uh, crazy pirate radio show. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's funny because Nadine seems so much more, not just happy, but comfortable yeah. within herself. And and you see that the, the the kind of inner joy that's expressed when she says those drapes are completely silent. It was her ambition to do that. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that so many characters have succeeded in some respects in uh, the return as well. I mean, to be honest, it's actually kind of interesting that Norma now runs a franchise of Double R Diners, mm. and Nadine managed to make her dream, which was always kind of treated as a bit of a joke in the original series she's made her dream a reality so it's kind of interesting that this is this is happening as well and i think we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss the moments like that which show that um, there have been positive things that have taken place yeah and then when jacoby says when he last saw her and he says uh you were on your hands and knees in the supermarket because you dropped a potato. You were looking for a potato. And then he says there was a big storm that day. Mm. And it's such a weird thing to remember. Mm. You know, you might remember the last time you saw someone, but you remember that there was a big storm that day that seemed, it seems portentous in some way. Mm. I don't know. Maybe it'll happen again. Mm. Unless that was actually a moment when something splintered in the universe. Mm. You know, maybe something happened that, seeded these cracks in the world of Twin Peaks. Although, to be fair, I, I don't know. I, 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 As I was saying earlier, I don't believe in the 
alternate timeline idea yet. Um, although, to be honest, it could all be proven wrong next week and I'll be a bigger supporter. <laughs> and then we've got Sarah drinking in her house. She's watching a boxing match. It's black and white, but it has the effect of looking blue on the TV, which resembles that wildlife documentary in Night Vision that she was watching originally. Yeah. But I think this is the day before she freaks out about the doppelgerky because she is looking for vodka and she's run out and all the bottles are empty mm. and she keeps going in and out of the room looking for more. So I think this is, again, the day before, the 29th, which means it's the 30th, that she goes to the grocery store to stock up on vodka because mm. she's completely out. So that means that everything we've seen in Twin Peaks is the day before what we saw when we were last in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Pretty much. But why do you think they've shown it out of order? Like, Why they just move this story back a day? I rather than just show that day and then show it now? Because it's... I think we mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, you have those two scenes with Jesse, Deputy Jesse, that become important now. It seemed odd that he was in two places at once. Yeah. Uh, when he's interacting with Frank Truman yeah. and Bobby, who's just stopped the people who have fired the gun in the car at the uh, at the double R yeah. in that previous episode. So what that's telling you is that we saw two scenes featuring Deputy Jesse that were played pretty much sequentially. And they made you wonder how it was in two places at once. But in reality, the one with uh, him talking to Bobby at the scene of the shooting is actually the day after yeah now and then the one where well potentially the one where he's um wanting to show truman his new car is today yeah as it is so part the events of part 13 in twin peaks are preceding the events of part 11 yeah yeah or part 12 oh gosh the puke zombie was part 11 yeah yeah so it's that one yeah yeah because i think not very much happened in did much happen in twin peaks no it was all uh coal on the gang in buckhorn yeah yeah it. gosh it's confusing <laughs> and then the boxing match on tv is the same 25 seconds looping over and over and over and over again yeah i don't know if it was intent or was it 25 seconds like 25 years I don't know. I mean, you, like, what I remember was you... It's weird. The first time, I didn't realise it was a glitch. But the, but then you hear it again and again. You see the same clip. You hear the same commentary. You hear this weird electrical fizzle or crackling sound. Mm. And it starts again. And it it's odd because I'm not even sure if Sarah notices this. No, I think she's too preoccupied looking for more vodka. Yeah. So it's unclear. It's it's very sad watching this. I think it was sad when we first saw her at the end of part two, before it cut to the roadhouse, mm. when you saw her watching that documentary. And this, it was like this, this, was it like a collective of big cats taking down like a buffalo or something like that and yeah. ripping it, ripping it to shreds, its head and everything. And now we see, I mean, this is the kind of torture that she's been living in for the last 25 years. I think you've realised the life that she's in, she hasn't moved. She's in the same place. And I noticed actually as we were watching part 12 again, 
it was notable that that first establishing shot of the Palmer house, you see how their lawn and their shrubs are all dead. Mm. I didn't realise that. I watched it again, but you see the neighbouring houses and they're all green and lush. But theirs is dead, so she hasn't looked after anything. And she's basically seemingly an alcoholic at home, smoking cigarettes, watching TV, and something is happening in that house which is causing the TV to skip, which is very, very unnerving. Yeah. Um, and causing the fan to come on. And causing the fan to come on. And even that I thought was really weird. So I, I was thinking about this again. And do you think that the fan that we saw in part 12, so that's always been associated with Bob and Laura in that room, and at the top of the stairs, and, you know, that 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 imagery has come up again and again. Do you think that just the the rotation of the fan, it's not just the, the electricity and what it's doing and what it symbolises, but do you think it's a, a thing which is linked to that vortex that forms? Because mm. I was wondering about this, and actually maybe that's what it is linked to in some way, especially when Sarah said, oh, um, there's something in the kitchen or something. When yeah. she has, you know, you know, they, maybe they'll show her in another part of the house and there's crazy stuff going on. Or, you know, I, th- I think we said last time that it could be a woodsman or there's somebody, there's somebody mm. in the house. Maybe even Laura's there. We don't know. But maybe there's something portal-like in that house that means that weirdness has just bled into it and uh, she's kind of trapped inside as well. Audrey and Charlie. More Audrey and Charlie. My goodness. It's it's what, the second scene of this. And already I'm starting to feel that there will be some payoff to this, but I can't see where it's going. No, there's something unreal. Well, there's something that cannot be taken at face value of what's happening. Hmm. Whether it's a performance, a coma dream, a therapy session, I, I genuinely don't know. But it's not a series of normal events playing out. Hmm. There's something funny about this. She says, I feel like I'm somewhere else. I'm somebody else. I'm not sure who I am, but I'm not me. Who am I supposed to trust except myself? And I don't even know who I am. So what am I supposed to do? And he says, you're supposed to go to the roadhouse and see if Billy is there. Hmm. Which is a follow up to their conversation last time. But now but now the conversation is in a different place in the house they're in. It's not like where she was standing in front of a fire before, wasn't she? And he was sitting down at his desk covered in paper. The conversation appears to have moved on, but yeah. they're in a different part of the house. And the house is very weird. It still looks like a set, and it still looks like it's just old. It's got old furniture in it, old books. There's nothing modern about it. And we have seen modernity in Twin Peaks, hmm. so it doesn't really make much sense. And she asks, is it far? Meaning, is the roadhouse far? Yeah. And he says, come on, you know where it is. And he makes them go, oh, would you... someone would think that you're on drugs. So I'll take you there. Are you going to stop playing games or do I have to end your story too? Mm. There's, there's something strange about this relationship and about what's really going on between them. Um, that she seems to... Last time she wanted to go to the roadhouse to find Billy. Now she's not even sure where the roadhouse is. Yeah. What is what is she supposed to do next? Referring to, to it as her story. And she said, "What story is that, Charlie? This it, it's not a, it's not a normal series of events playing out." I think she's lost, but it's unclear the extent to which she's lost or the context in which she's lost. Again, is she, you know, so I mean, obviously, there's one theory is that she's still in a coma. Mm. Um, another is that she's not in a coma, but she's in some kind of role play therapy or something. Um, I don't think this is. 
a stage play that she's written about her life. There's something not right about it. And has she kind of entered uh, the same kind of split psyche that you see in some of other some of the other Lynch films where she's kind of got a projection of herself which she's seeing do things but actually it's not her because she's in a completely traumatized state um potentially still in a coma but also just maybe she's just in a state of sort of very adverse mental health it's unclear yeah and she says help me it's like ghostwood here and then she starts crying yeah which is very very strange but although it was the last time we saw audrey was stop ghostwood yeah i didn't think it was originally but it that does have very logy connotations. Mm. But I I don't know how it all fits together again. Is it, you know, is it a link between Evil Cooper and uh and Audrey or is it something just unpleasant which is happening to her which is unrelated? It's weird that they've put all this story involving Audrey into the back end of the um season. But yeah. it's you know what I get a sense there's going to be lots to it, but actually it's all going to be in these few episodes. And it might even be unrelated to the main plot, so it might actually wrap up before part 18. And then the Roadhouse presents Mr. James Hurley. (laughs) My goodness. I think everyone in the world was shocked. I mean, completely shocked. I think, you know, for all the hype that part 12 got that was misplaced... If somebody had tweeted, wait to see who's on at the roadhouse (laughs) in part 13, people would have guessed it was like some mysterious cameo by a superstar. They might have thought it was David Bowie on stage at the roadhouse. Instead, arguably, it's something so much better than that. (laughs) I think it was ridiculous. It has the same MC who announced the Nine Inch Nails. And... Not only is it James Hurley, but it's James Hurley singing Just You and I. Mm. The same version as it was many years ago. The scene which has been turned into a bazillion internet memes. (laughs) I mean, to be honest, I was more, you know, I actually thought about this earlier on in the episode when I saw all the people in the farm in Montana watching Mm. a giant screen. I presumed... That within 20 minutes of the episode ending, I thought somebody's going to have James Hurley on that screen <laughs> doing that. It, it'll be the biggest screen they've ever had into a meeting. And I've seen the ones where he's on every screen when Warden Murphy is watching <laughs> Mr. C have his phone call. I've seen Gordon and Albert respond with the what the hell scene when Tammy's showing the stuff that happened in New York. Yeah. Any screen has had James Hurley in that because it has become this iconic <laughs> shambles this this moment when you weren't really sure what you were watching but you accepted it as part of the twin peaks universe i have to say watching it this time my response to it was very very different to how i'd ever watched it before because actually it wasn't as cloying as it was it seems very different now he's older in a strange kind of way yeah it it was an odd performance because he's 25 years older but the two backing singers that they'd got in for the two female voices were two young brunette women 
who were who are roughly the same age as Donna and Maddie would have been twenty five years ago yeah. when when they performed it the first time, and so it was this bizarre mix of kind of nostalgia and you know be, being it's like he was being deliberately self-referential within his own act performing it that way because obviously his his relationship with donna had broken down in some way yeah and maddie got killed and yet there he's performing this song that he recorded with them and getting two backup singers who look a bit like them to do their vocals. Is that what we're supposed to think James has been up to these last years? He's become a singer or is he just appearing there? Is he like celebrated because he's like hometown talent? And why the hell is the applause at the end so big for him? Because <laughs> these are people who have been watching all these other bands play and all of a sudden he, turn, he turns up, does that song and everyone's like, it's the greatest song ever. Yeah. And I think it's just remarkable how I thought the height of, the height of Frost and Lynch's playing with the audience regarding James was the whole, you know, James is cool. James has always been cool <laughs> back in part two. And that seemed like a knowing nod to the audience. Yeah. But this is ridiculous. And I, I and we actually searched through our Twitter feed. Uh, we tweeted somebody, I can't remember when it was, like about two episodes in. Um, this is back at the beginning of May or, sorry, at the, at the end of May, beginning of June. Yeah. And we said, you know, wouldn't it be funny if, James took to the stage at the Roadhouse and you know it's just ridiculous how this has happened I honestly have no idea but going back to Donna we do see Donna as well in the episode yeah her photo yeah because we see Lara Flynn Boyle era Donna yeah in a photo in uh, the Palmer house yeah which tells you actually that if there is going to be an appearance it's unlikely to be the Moira Kelly iteration certainly she's yeah. not listed but it's also unlikely to be any iteration of Donna so we <laughs> might actually find out what happened to Donna yeah certainly it's interesting because Gersten's still around yeah so you know how it all fits together will be kind of interesting as well and also um so Renee is in the audience watching and we saw her hanging out with Shelley in the James Cool James Always Been Cool when she was saying, oh, does James like you? And they were kind of looking at each other and she was like, oh, yeah, it's fine. But she starts crying watching his performance. Mm. And I don't know how much any of the other people know about what went on. Like, do, do they know the backstory of, of the song and who the people were that who's... He, or, or, or were they just very moved by it? It reminded mm. me of the bit in the roadhouse where they all start crying. Mm. But that had, different, that had different connotations as well. But I do wonder if, Maybe James is able to, you know, it always seemed like it would be Julie Cruz who would be on stage when there would be some direct appearance of Lodge-like entity or something like the giant or something appearing. That would happen when Julie Cruz was on stage. But it'd be interesting, actually, if James is somebody who's able to, um, well, because of his connection to the events 25 years ago, indeed with Laura, you do wonder if he's the one who's able to bring up that uh, link maybe open that that spiritual link between the roadhouse and its red curtains and the red room itself and i do wonder if actually it's going to be james who's going to have a lot of interactions with laura mm. coming up if she does actually return in any kind of physical form to the real world but certainly laura is haunting things because we saw her appear to gordon cole yeah when he was looking at albert a few episodes back so at least we know that she has a presence 
in this timeline, just not at the moment, seemingly in Twin Peaks. And one thing that was quite notable about the actress playing Renee is that um, she does appear to have a number on her arm. This is like seven, six, six, three. Yeah. And I even tried looking up if anything important happened on, well, the American way around it would be the 6th of July, Hmm. 1963. Uh, And then I I looked up who the actress was and I looked at a few dozen pictures of her until eventually I found one at some premiere somewhere and you can see the tattoo on her arm and it's actually just her tattoo, I think. It's the actress's tattoo. So it's not a Twin Peaks related thing and they just left it in. Yeah. No, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, when you go down the Twin Peaks rabbit hole, anything can become important. And I was even looking at things, what happened on this day, 6th of July, 1960, and thinking, which one of these things is going to be important? It's got to be one of them. There's even one where I was thinking, oh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, and then I thought, let me just check that it's not just the actress's tattoo. <laughs> so what was that thing that you thought was potentially quite interesting? Oh, man, it was. Th- this is from some website that tells you what happened on important days. So uh, assuming that they're right, it was on that day that the Pope officially changed the policy of the Catholic Church towards cremation to say that uh, cremation could not damage the soul or prevent the soul from being intact or prevent God from from re-establishing the body something like that and I started thinking ooh fire soul all this kind of interesting stuff and then it turned out to just be the actress's own tattoo (laughs) (laughs) then we don't get the credits of the roadhouse instead we cut to Big Ed's gas farm yeah where he's got his giant bear with me bear head on the the desk and I think at this point the show is asking the audience to bear with it quite a bit um, and he's just sitting in silence, he's eating his soup, and he's got a coffee cup there. Double R to go. Yeah. yeah, it's all very sad. And he just sits in the dark, um, looking out through the glass doors as traffic goes past. He burns a piece of paper, I, I can't if it was a receipt or just something. It's hard to know, so I, w- I wasn't sure what that was. Um, I'm not sure if it's linked to the conversation he had with Bobby, but it, it did just look like... Um, a matchstick book mm. but it's unclear what it was but given that he's in the gas station mm. it did make me think a little bit about part 8 again when you have the woodsman appearing at a gas station yeah. um, well, it, well it was a convenience store sorry but you see um, the girl and the boy characters walking past something that looks like what might be the a later iteration of the convenience store but it has two gas pumps outside and yeah it looks a bit similar in in, uh, in context to what we're seeing here, and certainly with the lead Lincoln Woodsman saying "God a light" and you know Ed lighting a matchbook. Similarly, the uh, statement from Leland that when he remembers Bob when he was younger, Bob would say, "You know, you like to play with matches and flick matches at him." There's something mm. funny going on here, but it does also just play into the fact that maybe. Well, maybe it is the pain and suffering that Ed is going through and has been going through for a long time that has made him a centre for maybe attracting some weird stuff that's going on. But there's something not not good about his state of mind in these scenes. No, and there's something not good in the gas farm. Yeah. Because as the credits roll, 
and he's looking at himself but he's looking out through the glass doors and you can see the reflection of him in the glass doors in the window and there is a point where if you look really closely what his reflection is doing is not what he is doing Hmm. it's like some weird little time loop has gone on and his reflection is eating from a cup and he is not the cup is on the table Hmm. it's really messed up and he notices it as well yeah um it's odd it's not it's kind of hard to see unless you put your face right up against the screen um in those moments just before the credits roll but it's where he's put his cup down and he's sitting there and you see him look ahead at his reflection and he looks really intently and you can just see that his reflection is drinking so whether that's a loop of what's already happened or what's about to happen it's unclear but i don't like what's happening to big ed here because i think something bad is about to take place at the gas farm um and certainly i'm it made me think a lot about what jesse said in part 11 yeah because when he came across bobby now if we're saying that the scene where bobby sees the puke zombie girl is the day after the events we see in twin peaks in part 13 then we also know that Deputy Jesse is going to show up to assist Bobby. And that's going to be tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. And he says, I was at Big Ed's gas farm and I heard shots. And there's an ambiguity there over whether he heard shots at Big Ed's gas farm or he heard the shots from Big Ed's gas farm. And I think I thought it was a bit weird that he could hear the shots in the main street all the way from Big Ed's. Hmm. Which makes you wonder if Big Ed is alone at the gas farm and something is going to happen and he's going to have to pull a gun. And he can clearly use one because he's a bookhouse boy. Yeah. Um, but I think this might be an interesting moment that's about to take place. And again, it's just about this feeling that we've almost gone back a day in Twin Peaks just to keep it treading water to make sure that everything else lines up with it but there's something that's uh not right and i think he might be the first person who's to actually see what's happening certainly after sarah's warning that men are coming you do wonder if we're going to see woodsman dropping out of the sky and landing in twin peaks maybe at the gas farm and either he's going to launch some kind of last stand and blow everything up at the end um or he's going to join the trip to Jack Rabbit's palace because maybe they're going to need more bookhouse boys to do it. Um, Certainly James is there. You know, there's a few of them still around. Uh, You know, they're missing Harry, but, you know, it'd be nice to see uh, Big Ed being called to arms in a plot which is not such a blunt reiteration of his series one and two plot line of being married to Nadine and having this unrequited thing with... uh, Norma. Hmm. So that's what happened in part 13 of Twin Peaks The Return. Yeah, it's getting quite close to the end now, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, we touched upon it at the end of our part 12 episode. It is hard to work out what the trajectory of this story is actually going to be 
with only five hours left. I mean, I, <laughs> I remember we said this last time, but it really, I mean, the Las Vegas thing has to be done now. There's, there's another episode in it which must involve um, Hutch and Chantel maybe going to find Duncan, Todd, before or after an attempt on um, Dougie Coop. Yeah, it has to involve the FBI. Now that they know that Las Vegas is important in some way, they have yeah. to turn up. Well, I was thinking about this and... You know, they they might be heading there, but maybe it goes back to the fact that the FBI will have a flag up saying these prints were run. That's mm. what, that might be the thing that that gets them to come over. Um, but again, we have the what you brought up at the very beginning was the fact that Battle in Bud and um, Dougie Coop now have the same car. Yeah, and mistakes are made in these situations, mm. and that could be a um, a problem. And Bushnell still hasn't punched anyone. Yeah, that is true. I mean, it'd be weird if he doesn't. I mean, so do you think that that boxing scene was to do with uh, Battling Bud? That, you, you know, because we watched it a few times, there was nothing in it which immediately said it was. Yeah. But it could just be a... Well, it could just be a callback to the boxing mythology that relates to Battling Bud. And, and there's moments when, you know, Dougie Coop mimics some of these moves. Yeah, it's just... It's just been referred to too many times. Yeah. At this point, it's basically Chekhov's fist, isn't it? Mm. That it's got to connect with somebody, whoever it may be. Otherwise, it's... I mean, may, may, maybe they won't. You can't put anything past them. Yeah. It's but, unclear. That, I mean, they could go in a completely different direction with all these things. And it's clear that they are sometimes spending a lot of time with certain characters and other times just rattling through them. Mm. Um. We're just a bit, I think, left dangling at the moment, mm. wanting to know if we are going to complete this odyssey in the next five hours. Um, I think it will. I mean, like, I think a lot can happen in a few episodes. But, you know, do you think it will just be a case of most things taking place in the last two hours? Is that where, you know, are the last two hours going to be Jack Rabbit's Palace? I don't know, because is Twin Peaks now going to jump to two days ahead? Or are we going to have to go through the 30th September again from somebody else's point of view? Yeah. Well, I think we will a little bit because we'll want to know what happened to Big Ed at the gas farm. Mm. Uh, so maybe they want to show that. They maybe want to show what Jesse does when he gets there. Um, we also have this, this issue of what is going to happen to the timelines of Mr. C going to Las Vegas and whether the preoccupation in Las Vegas is going to postpone Cole and the gang's trip to Twin Peaks as well. Now they have the coordinates to go there. Yeah, I don't know because we left Cole and the gang and I think it was the 30th of September. So if they're going to be there at Jack Rabbit's Palace, they've got to go the next day and not get waylaid by Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I think it's... I think. This goes back to this idea that, you know, some elements of the plot are deliberately moving in funny timelines and other ones aren't. Also, um, something weird has happened with the timeline in with the FBI. I know they went in this episode, but uh, Diane's clothes change in a really weird way. Hmm. We've done this timeline. We'll probably put it up later in the week. 
I'm going to tinker around with it a bit more. Um, but it basically tries to figure out, generally speaking, how five different story threads match up with each other at certain points. Twin Peaks, Buckhorn, the FBI, Mr. C, and Las Vegas. And Diane's clothes, she's uh, wearing a red shirt when she visits Mr. C in prison. She's wearing some kind of crazy multicoloured shirt the day they divert to Buckhorn to go and see Briggs's body and she gets the text message the conversation is lively. Then she is wearing a green shirt when they go to the zone and Hastings is killed, which would be the day after. So the, the day after they interrogate Hastings, they, they take him out to the zone and he gets killed she's wearing a green shirt then when we see Tammy get inducted into the Blue Rose squad and Diane being deputised and she says let's rock she's wearing the red shirt again and then the French woman is at the hotel and Diane gets the Las Vegas text and she's still wearing the red shirt but then when she types the coordinates into her phone she's wearing the green shirt and yet all four of those events are portrayed as if they were a continuous series of events mm. in a single day from the FBI's perspective. So why she changed her clothes twice, it doesn't make sense. I don't know, actually. I mean, she's on she's on a last-minute trip, isn't she? She keeps getting thrown around to different locations, and we have to go here, we have to go here. But it's, it's strange. The attention to detail that's taking place means that certain things would have just been shot vaguely in sequence. So they would know what clothes somebody might be wearing. And yet, I don't think there's anything particularly strange happening with the timeline here that would explain that other than, I mean, you know, is it just a continuity error or is it a, a deliberate thing? Because some of those events just wouldn't make sense if you put them in the order of her changing her clothes. No, I mean, you might, change your, you might change your clothes during the day, especially if you've just been out to some crazy vortex site where a dude wears a head cut open. <laughs> but why would you then change back into the same clothes yeah, again later on? type some coordinates in at the bar well i think we can expect that in part 14 we probably will return to column again because that has to get moving a little bit yeah to uh bring it into line with everything else we still don't know if there's going to be some convergence of column the gang with uh hutch and chantel mm. you know and i think that could be the thing that, you know maybe it's going to be a quick trip there to rescue dougie but again i don't know maybe you know is dougie going to find his way back to Twin Peaks some other way. It's odd. We have those We have those very important shots that we haven't seen yet of the, in the trailer. You know, the one of uh, Dale Cooper seemingly, you know, in some room where he kind of turns his head and there's somebody standing next to him. There's the one where he's uh, driving a car, I think looking in the rearview mirror as well. It's It's a bit strange. You know, there's a lot to happen. But again, they could all be back towards the end. But I just can't see what that arc is going to be. But to be honest, I'm still enjoying it immensely. It's strange. It's like, I don't really know where it's going. But I'm quite happy to let it just happen. But I do hope that something happens. Yeah. That's my one concern. I don't want to end up with a really rushed ending. It, it's, it would be nice if it felt satisfactory, even if it wasn't all neatly wrapped up. You want them to have the chance to tell the story they wanted to tell. But it's just unclear what that story is at the moment. So thank you for listening to 
part 13 of Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. We're actually off to Worldcon 75 in Helsinki this week. And so actually our episode next week is going to be a little bit delayed because we won't be even able to watch Twin Peaks on Monday morning. Yeah, we'll be watching it Monday night. Yeah, so we'll hopefully have an episode out on Tuesday evening, but it could be Wednesday. It actually depends on how things get in the way of things. Um, In the meantime, do uh, get in touch with us over Twitter and Facebook. It's really great to have all your feedback when we put these episodes up. And if you like our episodes, share them, retweet them. Uh, Let us know what you think about some of our theories and completely rubbish them. Or (laughs) tell us about some of the things you've been thinking about as well. Um, This is only like what we're thinking about within a 24-hour period of watching the show in the first instance. And it's often immediately after we've uploaded these things that we think i wish i'd said that i wish i'd said that i wish i'd thought about this and when people start talking to us about what they've interpreted and seen we think oh that's really cool and, and that's really interesting um bex you were talking about this timeline that you've been working on mm. this grand timeline of what's <laughs> of what's happening so maybe we'll we'll put that up later in the week if we think it actually makes some sense i think we have to think about it a little bit first um but it'd be nice to put that up and see what people think about that yeah yeah yeah, I think that'd be good. Um, but there are some things in it that can't make sense. I think there's one thing that must just be a, a continuity issue around a date that appears on something because I just can't make it work <laughs> otherwise. Um, but you know, those things happen. Not everything is going to be is going to be perfect. Um, but the the clothes. I've been trying to track what people are wearing. And Lucy's cardigans and things. Oh yeah, the many cardigans of Lucy Brennan. Um, but it's Diane's clothes that are really bending my mind at the moment. To be interested to know what people make of that. Yeah. So uh, until next time, that's mm. it for part 13. We'll see you in just over a week. And hopefully we'll also be putting up something. Well, if we can get around to doing it, um, a special episode later this week. Mm. Um, but you'll find out about that a bit later on. So, for now, goodbye. Goodbye.